Welcome to the UX of Diversity podcast, featuring Shayna Alquist and Stephen Ruiz. The podcast is a blend of narrative and interviews, all centering around issues surrounding diversity and inclusion. We will cover issues surrounding gender, race, LGBT, and other forms of diversity, including age. Although we'll emphasize diversity in the technology space, we'll also be drawing from fields including HR, academia, consulting services, and more. Kat Richards, welcome to the podcast. So Kat, I know today we're going to talk about accessibility and inclusive design, but before we get to that, can you tell people what you do for a living? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm the UX lead at Hoffman York. Uh, It's an advertising agency in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and my day today kind of varies. um, Like most UX individuals, Um, it depends on the day and it kind of shifts from talking to stakeholders and end users um, to creating prototypes and wireframes to facilitating workshops to putting together content strategy guides. It's kind of all over. There are challenges for smaller or even mid-sized agencies to be able to to implement those goals. But I mean, before we get into that, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what accessibility and inclusive design are. Yeah, absolutely. Accessibility is more special considerations for people with disabilities, um, how they perceive, interact, understand, or even navigate tools or services that we're building versus inclusive design, thinking about how do we redesign a product or an experience fundamentally so that the barrier doesn't even exist in the first place. I think that they both go hand in hand. I mean, accessibility is more like an attribute, whereas inclusive design is more like a method that kind of works together so that we can build an experience that is usable for everybody. My husband recently had a problem with um, deafness on one of his ears that was intermittent. So even though I come from a UX background, I'm having a new wave of empathy following his experience with right, a changing um, disability. I know that we all want to feel good and hold hands, but um, can you talk a little bit, talk a little bit more about why businesses and agencies need to think about inclusive design? In an ideal world, we would have an endless amount of time and an endless amount of budget and a team to actually help execute all of these, right? But realistically, when we're scrambling for deadlines and making sure that the product that we promise is actually going to launch on time, unfortunately, the last thing we think about is, does it match, you know, does not meet all the accessibility criteria and making sure that we're accommodating for everybody? So, I mean, we should be doing this because as a UX designer, we're building for everybody, right? But if you really needed actual rationale, you know, just looking at numbers alone, there's 57 million individuals who identify as disabled individuals in just US. That's about 20% of the population, which is crazy. That's a, a huge amount of people that, you know, we're not thinking about and creating a better solution for. From a UX perspective, we should be designing for everybody and we're allowing individuals to have that independence by making sure that it works for you know, not just your bigger population. Yeah, I think that's really, really a a vital thing to keep in in mind. I heard a really great quote that said something along the lines of, by designing based on our own abilities and perspectives, we create digital solutions that work for some, but unintentionally exclude others. And I think that's such a valid part, I think, of the design process and something I I teach uh, UX at uh, at UCLA Extension, and there was, that's part of you know the training now, and I don't think that's always been the case. You know, it's really interesting to to, to talk about the differentiation between accessibility and inclusive design, absolutely, and to just look at the numbers, right? Um, you know, when that moves into the business rationale, that can be something that's uh, you know a, a really interesting conversation as well. And maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're also going to be 
more thinking about um, as a company, we're building a better business report, right? We're building product quality for everybody. And ideally, you know, we'd also be looking at um, avoiding a lot of lawsuits. There has actually been companies who uh, had accessibility litigations like Target. Um, Their first major class action was about $6 million and then another 3.7 million just on legal fees. And then in addition to that, there's also Wells Fargo who also went through that same um, process of getting sued for accessibility issues. You know, in preparation for this this conversation, I, I looked at the Target lawsuit, and it's it's really interesting to me. So, ADA compliance, right? There are these legal requirements that you have to make businesses accessible to people of a variety of abilities. But what's interesting is now we're shifting away from brick and mortar stores into online shopping in the digital space. I wonder how many of these lawsuits we're going to see moving forward, where you you're requiring that certain websites be accessible to everybody hopefully less of those lawsuits because we're all thinking about this as part of our process (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely (laughs) well hopefully you know as 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 ux practitioners and and people that are focused on diversity there's there's a a a trend to to make that just be baked into the process which is such a hard thing to do like being able to empathize with somebody um and being able to create that sort of just bake it into the ux process is such a a, a vital part of that. And, you know, I have a little bit of experience with that, but maybe you can, you know, tell us a little bit more about what other other companies are doing. The two big ones that are off, off the top of my head, Microsoft and Google, they're actually doing a, a few things here about accessibility. Um, Microsoft actually uh, released a toolkit as well as activity cards for um, agencies or companies to kind of like experience as a team to put themselves in the situations with situational or temporary disabilities to go through an exercise for a product or an experience to kind of um, build that empathy and understand the issues and the, uh, the workarounds that they have to go through. Um, their guide actually was really interesting to me because the way that they broke it down, they talk about persona spectrums and the different states of disability. So there's the permanent, the temporary and situational. So um, like you mentioned earlier, your husband um, recently, you know, lost a little bit of hearing temporarily. And um, that's something that they talked about. So for instance, like for hearing someone who is deaf is very different from someone who has an ear infection versus someone at a bar where they can't really hear. Um, but the solution that we're creating works for all three types, right? But they're all very different still. Oh, that's so interesting. And I wonder too, if you have to have um, accessibility is not the right word in this conversation, but you know, ease of finding that out. So if, if you're someone who is deaf, the tools that you have at your disposal and, and the expectations you have are, are very different than a bartender who is not absolutely. trained to look for solutions when they can't hear. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, Kat, you had mentioned, um, for instance, being hard of hearing. What other kinds of, you know, disabilities or design considerations should we keep in mind? Yeah, um, actually, Microsoft does a great job talking a little bit about that as well. Um, they break out additional considerations like visual, um, colorblindness, uh, motor and mobility, um, the hearing that we've already talked about, um, seizures as well, sensitivity to light, motions, or even like flickering on websites or apps or anything like that, um, as well as learning disabilities. So not all of them are physical. There's a lot of other ones that are definitely covered in the guide. Oh, that's interesting. No, and I mean, you mentioned, for instance, visual uh, disabilities, like even colorblindness. I recently, um, through the advice of Tristan Harris, who's the founder of the Time Well Spent Movement, he's a series of recommendations for how to break away from addictive technologies. And one of his recommendations is that you can turn your phone into grayscale mode on the iPhone at least. 
And what's interesting about it is he recommends it because it's less jarring and less interesting and um, sort of gamified. But what I found interesting was that it was a lot harder to use the technology because you are removing um, a whole layer of, of contrast and information. And I remember thinking, clearly these products were not designed for people who are colorblind. <laughs> They're designed for people who can see all the colors. And so I, I ended up not using it in great scale mode very often, in part because it was so difficult to navigate. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, it's and I think that's such a really good example of how you can um, try to form that empathetic bond with people that have different types of ability that you do. I uh, was at the uh, Santa Monica College uh, cohort graduation for interaction design this past weekend, and there was one um, paraplegic student that they had that had done an example of how, what it feels like to be a paraplegic and use digital tools. And part of it was like taking a, a large size marshmallow and putting it in your mouth and sitting on your hands and trying to um, interact with different things and writing different things. And it was a very, very pow powerful experience. And I think that it's, it's, it's a really, you know, as UX designers, it's really important for us to do this. And it's, it's really fascinating how that, that um, some of that thinking trickles into, say, uh, you know, uh, Fortune 500 company thinking, and maybe that's something we could talk a little bit about because I know that um, Kat, that there there was a study that that you had mentioned. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I I did a little digging before this, uh, this before this conversation, and there was a study done last year where they compared um, 30 14, Fortune 500 companies, and they kind of all vary um, from B2B to B2C across financial, healthcare, technology. Uh, manufacturing, and then I think retail and wholesale was also on there. Um, and what they did was kind of go through an accessibility checklist as well as looking through their SEO to compare how they rang. And so what was interesting was that the way that they took away from this, and um, they actually have a PowerPoint and also um, a, a talk about this as well, anyone is curious about like diving further into it. Um, but they kind of looked at 500 different pages on every single website on all three, uh, 30 of these Fortune 500 companies. And they looked at the benchmark and the takeaway from that was the retail sector. The ranking for that was so incredibly low. It was 3.3 .3 out of 10 on meeting the accessibility compliance. And then wow. financial sectors had like surprisingly the least um, or the most, I'm sorry, the most SEO and accessibility issues compared to all the other industries. Accessibility and building the, as part of our process in websites, in anything, products, services, it's still an issue. If you're a scrappy startup and you've got 600 users, you can't, you, you maybe can't put as much time and attention onto this as, as a larger company. But if you're a Fortune 500 company, not only do you have the, um, the resources to make that happen, but you probably also have a legal responsibility, as you mentioned earlier with the, um, the lawsuits. But my understanding of the ADA, which is certainly not complete, <laughs> is that if a company has the ability to implement this without undue burden, it's expected of them. So that that's just mind blowing to me. Yeah, it was definitely crazy. I I mean, I, I didn't expect it to be 10 out of 10, but I definitely expected it higher than the 3.3. Well, and also, as like I mentioned, as we're moving into this online shopping space, it kind of surprises me that, that companies aren't using this as a major point of differentiation, right? So if I'm Walmart trying to compete with Amazon Prime, one way that I might be able to get there is to get that 20% of the population who <laughs> needs, right. needs these additional um, considerations. 
I think that's one of the most surprising factors of all that it's very surprising that more of these companies don't pitch the the business value proposition, especially when you're talking about spaces that have, you know, such different types of competition and potential margin challenges that you would say, look, here's a, there's a very strong business case to do this, right? And not just because it's the right thing to do. I personally like to find the Venn diagram between those <laughs> two things, but it's it's a really fascinating set of circumstances um, to kind of find out. But, but, you know, I would say also that it's kind of our responsibility, you know, like designers and UXers, I mean, it's kind of our responsibility um, to attack that. And, and I guess, you know, with that in mind, like, what can we do as designers and UXers to help address this problem? Well, the first thing, as you've mentioned, is kind of talking to your leadership, right? And showing the business value of it, getting your team educated in that there is a need for this and understanding what does it even mean? Um, what can we do about that? And there's so many resources out there. Like I mentioned, Google and Microsoft has a great guide or even conference discussions um, as starting points. And then there's also a lot of books and podcasts like this one um, where we talk about this as an issue and what can we actually do to solve it. Um, And then there's actually one other agency that I was looking at, which um, I actually just printed out and I taped it around my desk so that people that are walking around me can kind of see. But they created infographics, um, Home Office Digital, they're called. um, And they created really fun infographics that uh, talk about how can we design things that are for individuals with low vision or people on the autistic spectrum or people with dyslexia or physical or motor disabilities um, or even people with anxiety. Like, how do we think about all those things as part of a UX process when we're designing um, to accommodate for those things? Oh, that's interesting. So you're able to essentially just print this infographic from Home Office Digital and keep it by you as sort of a reference. Yeah, absolutely. So I taped it like right around my the outside of my desk. So whenever people walk by my desk to get, you know, water or, you know, whatever to the kitchen or whatever, they see that and just hoping that subliminally they're learning as they're watching it. Oh, that's so interesting, too. And it's so different than, like we said, if you're if you're Google, you can have whole departments that are devoted to justice. But what you just described is something really, really simple that any UXer could do just to keep these things even at the back of their mind. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. what, what else can we do besides, I think this is, I love this because it's so light and lean, uh, but yeah, what else can we do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, th- another thing is that adding it as part of your process, right, as a UX designer, as as well as development process, um, again, going back with the educating your team and the, the importance of it, um, making sure that we are creating an accessibility checklist as part of this process. Um, and a lot of that kind of ties into SEO. So making sure that you have your H tags, your meta descriptions, image tags, um, alt tags, and they're all in the proper hierarchy because screen readers are reading it um, in and, and really, order. Really quickly, can you just share what a screen reader is for people who might not know? Yeah, sure. It's essentially a, a system where it will read um, your website like a robot would. Um, and depending on what you use it kind of like voices out like this is what this text is and this is the body paragraph and this is this button and what the, what the button says is what this image is and describes what it is got it so essentially screen readers are used for people who are hard to see and it sounds like if the structures aren't put in there it doesn't work <laughs> yeah or it won't give you um any useful information mm. so for instance if you can't if you can't see and um, there's a visual image or a photograph or something and you didn't really put in a description of what that photo is. It, it just says a photo. What can you do with that information? <laughs> what about from the content side? Is there anything that that we could do from the content side? 
Yeah, um, making sure that content-wise you can resize it up to 200% without using, you know, assistive technology. Um, again, making sure that the content that you want end users to read is in the right priority, um, is in the right hierarchy. And then as well as making sure that users have the control on how they want to interact with the content. Um, and Google mentions this a little bit too from um, their recent seminar at the Google I.O. 18 conference. Um, and they talk a little bit about making sure that grouping, you're grouping your controls and your labels together, um, making sure that uh, the tabbing structure works within the keyboard and the content is organized within groups so that, you know, for instance, the example that they gave was you're on a listing view and you're looking for a car or you're looking for a hotel. And the default is that you would tab and it would take you one listing at a time down the entire listing of 60 before you can get to the filter tab because that's on a different column. And so, so this is, sorry to interrupt, so this is, because I, I didn't understand this the first time I read it. So essentially, you're talking about if someone's not using a mouse and they want to navigate on a web page, they're literally using the tab button to move down the page. Correct. Got Absolutely. it, got it. And so for them to get to the filter section, they have to go through the entire listing on the left side first, because that's how the content was organized on the page when it was developed. And so you're thinking about that. They have to tab through all of those results before they get to the filter to find exactly what they're looking for. So what they were recommending from Google's perspective was grouping those listings as one group, and then the user would be able to go into click, you know, clicking enter on the key and saying like, that's the group I want. Now I want to get into it and dive deeper into that instead of, you know, having to force them to go down the listing and then get to the filters, which is where they wanted to go from the first place. Oh, that's interesting. And I can imagine, I know when I was a child back in the day and AOL was all the rage, I remember using, <laughs> I, the tabs and spacebar intuitively to navigate through the space um, because yeah. it felt quicker. So I'm wondering if also this wouldn't be helpful just for people who um, with accessibility issues, but for maybe power users who just want to like, absolutely, you know, lean, mean, tear through this website. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's too funny. That's a really good point though. It, when you start to look at things like, um, best practices around some of these things, these are can be translated into best practices across the board because if you're you're really formatting your content to be accessible to a screen reader, you're also creating content that's much better from an SEO perspective overall, right? So that's that's yes, that's yes. a pretty cool that's pretty cool. And I imagine, Kat, that a lot of this um, especially from a UX perspective, takes takes some testing, right? So so how, how does that work in your world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a UX designer, you should definitely be testing all the time on anything you're building anyways. At least that's what I'm hoping all of us are doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, from a UX perspective, making sure that you're talking and testing with disabled users from all spectrums um, and actually empathizing with them and understanding the situations and the workarounds that they have to go through um, Again, on top of that, manually testing with screen readers and keyboards as well um, on your prototypes or on your on your um, UAT sites or anything like that. Um, and you can also use screen readers. There's so many out there. The one that I can think of off the top of my head is JAWS. Otherwise, you can also do TalkBack through Android or VoiceOver for iOS um, just to see how the screen reader would decipher your website. And is it reading back the content properly or is it in the right hierarchy? Um, and then the last thing you can do is using third-party sites like Wave for websites or pre-launch report for apps uh, to get kind of a high-level accessibility issue report to make sure that nothing was missed. Hopefully that's the last point because before then you would have covered 
hopefully majority of it already. So it sounds like there's a lot of different places in the process where we could be doing, if not all of this, more. (laughs) Yeah. That's, uh, there's a lot there, right? So from your perspective, like, what would you say, like, if you were to kind of, you know, have an elevator pitch, right? So, I mean, to summarize, like, essentially what we kind of just talked about, um, making sure that we get the company buy-in as well as team education, making sure that they all understand the value of this and why it's even important. And, you know, we can even do something simple like, a workshop where we can build that empathy and put ourselves in the situational or temporary disability and experience what that feels like and feel that frustration and understand the existing workarounds that a lot of people have to go through. Um, In addition to that, as I mentioned, um, the accessibility checklist as a part of the design and the development process, making sure that we're checking all the items. So think about like, did we, did we cover all the H tags? Did we cover all the meta descriptions? Did we cover all of that um, SEO? Um, and then, of course, the most important one, talking to and testing with disabled users, making sure that we're hearing what they're telling us, like with every UX process, we're talking to our end users because we're not the users. They are. 